I was amazed at the absolute precision. Years ago, my brother was in the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the Academy hosted a family weekend. So I went to Colorado with my mom and dad, and we spent some time with my brother and saw all that was happening there at the Academy. And one day, they uh, took us out to the parade ground, and the different squadrons lined up in formation, and they did some different drills and marched. And I remember squadron after squadron coming and turning and marching off the field. And, and after the, the parade was over, I remember looking at the grass, and there were perfectly straight lines where the cadets had marched in order. And I was just amazed at how precise their marching was, how organized it was. He said, why all of the, the, the marching and the organizing, what's the big deal? Well, the armed forces understand that if a unit's going to be effective in accomplishing its mission, there has to be organization. People have to know their roles, they have to know what they are supposed to do, and they have to do things decently and in order to accomplish what they're called to accomplish. Well, guess what? It's the same way in the church. If we're going to accomplish our mission, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, we've got to be organized for impact. And so, thinking about that idea, I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we are continuing our study through this wonderful New Testament book, line by line, verse by verse, and we've made it to Acts chapter 6. We will begin reading in verse 1. Acts Chapter 6, verse 1. And I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's living, holy word. Truth with no mixture of error. FYI, we're going to take a break from Acts starting next week. And I'm going to begin a new series titled, Seven Sayings from the Cross. And you know the Bible records in the Gospels that Jesus said seven specific things when he was hanging upon the cross. We're going to study those sayings one by one leading up to Easter Sunday. So that will prepare our heart thinking about the crucifixion, prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection on Easter. So I'm really excited about this sermon series starting next Sunday. So be here for that. God's already began to stir my heart uh, with the truths that we're going to be looking at uh, in the Gospels. Uh, And I, I pray God will use it to absolutely transform our church. So I cannot wait to just preach about the cross for the next couple of months and see what God does. Sound good? But this morning we're in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. The Bible says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God 
continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful, Lord, for your presence here. Lord, we know that you promised to be in the midst of your people when they gather. Lord, you tell us that you draw near to inhabit the praises of your people, and that is an awesome reality. So, Lord, I thank you for your presence here. And, and God, I, I, I ask you to manifest your presence, God. May we sense your presence. May we be changed as we come face-to-face with the living God as we study your word. Lord, use your word to change our lives. Holy Spirit of God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and apply them, that our lives will really look different when we leave this room today. And Lord, would you just help us to lift up the name of Jesus, because it's all about Him. Our hope is in Jesus and only Jesus. We love you, we praise you, we adore you. Lord, we, we are gathered expectantly. We expect you to do something in our midst. Now, Lord, show yourself mighty and strong for the glory of your great name. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Acts is a story of the birth and growth of the church in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, The Bible records that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. He was buried, and early on the third day, he rose from the grave. Then he spent about 40 days on the earth with his disciples as the resurrected Lord. And then he ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of his Father. And after he ascended back to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, God, uh, by the power of the Spirit, birthed the New Testament church. There in the city of Jerusalem, about 3,000 folks were saved. And as we study the following chapters, we see that the church grew and multiplied by leaps and bounds. We've seen them deal with different struggles and different challenges, but God was moving through the New Testament believers in remarkable ways. And we see in chapter 6 that the church in Jerusalem is confronted with another challenge, a brand new challenge. And there's much for us to learn in how they address this situation and how they deal. There's, There's direct application to you and to me and to the point from this passage. And so we're going to see this interesting story and how it relates to our church. And what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage under three different headings. The first heading is this. I want you to see the struggle. The struggle. What's happening here? What what is the situation? It says there in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, notice that, increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, there are several things we can learn from this passage. First of all, we can learn that growth can lead to unique challenges. Did you notice it said, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church was exploding with growth. And you need to understand that growth can present challenges, very real challenges, to a body of believers. Now, I've seen churches, been involved in churches before, that deal with challenges that come from decline, that deal with challenges that come from plateauing, and, and they're not growing. And, 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 and instead of growing, they're going the opposite direction. And that raises a great 
uh, a great amount of challenges for a church to deal with. But you need to understand that growth can also bring challenges. And, and here's what was happening. It says there in verse 1 that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, who were the Hellenists? Very simply speaking, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. These were Jews by ethnicity that were not born in uh, Israel. They were born in uh, a Greek-speaking culture, and they grew up as Jews, but they grew up learning the Greek language. And because they wanted to be a part of what God was doing in Jerusalem, the centerpiece of worship for the Jewish people, many of these, these Greek-speaking Jewish families, these Hellenist families, would go back to live in Jerusalem. They would make the, the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And so you had folks that were getting saved that were Jews and spoke Greek. That was their background. And you had folks getting saved that were Jews, grew up in Judea or Galilee or in Jerusalem or the surrounding area, and they spoke Hebrew. And so you had two groups that were Jews by ethnicity and were saved by Jesus Christ, but there were some cultural differences to, that led to some conflicts. So, wait, that's ridiculous. How could these folks have a disagreement because one group spoke Greek and another group spoke Hebrew. Did you know I've heard really mean things said about Northerners? <laughs> Yankees. There, there can be an inherent prejudice in those folks that live up north, right? And folks up north can have this inherent prejudice against those that live down south. And our language is different, Right? We're all American, but you know, there's this kind of there's this divide, right? You see how it can happen? It can happen very easily. And and here in this situation, someone noticed that the the Hebrew speaking Jewish widows seem to be getting their allotment of food and care to the exclusion of the Greek speaking Jewish widows. And so it says there a complaint arose. That's that's the struggle. The growth, folks getting saved from different backgrounds, the growth led to this unique challenge. And conflict arose. And here's what you need to understand about conflict. Conflict can distract a church from its primary purpose. It always does. Conflict distracts a church from its primary purpose. Look what is said in verse 2. The twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, they're saying if we make this situation our primary focus and we deal with the distribution of food and care for these different groups of widows, then we are not going to have time to fulfill our primary calling from God, the ministry of the word. And so the ministry of the word will suffer neglect if we take our time to fix this issue, to deal with this conflict. In other words, as we focus on this issue, this complaint, then the preaching of the gospel will suffer. The, the word of God will not go forth like it was. The, the growth of the church will be impeded by this distraction. And that's what conflict does. Conflicts always, conflict always distracts the church from its primary purpose. Have you ever watched a sporting event and you see a team that gets behind in the game and the teammates start fussing and fighting on the sidelines. You ever seen that? And you know when the team is fussing and fighting with itself, you know they're in trouble, right? When they start yelling at one another, you know they're not thinking about executing the next play. They've turned inward. And 
it's not going to go, out, go so well for them. It's the same way with a church. When a church is fussing and fighting, guess what they're not thinking about? They're not thinking about making disciples. They're not thinking about proclaiming the gospel. They're not thinking about praying for the lost. They're not thinking about reaching people that, that need Jesus Christ. They're inwardly focused because of the conflict. And the apostles understood this was a danger, that, that conflict can distract a church from its primary purpose. So we see the struggle here. This issue arises as a result of growth. Organization was called for, which leads to the second heading I want you to see, the solution. The solution, I believe in a spirit-filled way, the apostles lead the church to a viable solution to deal with this issue. So wait, how do they deal with it? Well, first of all, a new church office was established to deal with the issue. Look what it says in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They said, we're going to raise up a group of men. You're going to select a group of men who will take care of the distribution to the widows and deal with this problem so we can maintain our focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. So a new church office was established to deal with the issue. So I believe here in Acts 6 we have the beginning of the deacon Ministry. So how do you know this is the beginning of the deacon ministry? Well, the word deacon, the Greek word diakonos, is used in this text. Look what it says there in verse 1. It says, There arose against the Hebrews a complaint from the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That word distribution in the original Greek language is the noun form of the word diakonos, the noun form of the word deacon, which simply means servant. So, Folks were being overlooked in the daily service that needed to take place, diakonos. And then look at the next verse, verse 2. It says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word serve is the, the verb form of deacon, diakonos. So the word is used twice here in this text. And I believe this is the beginning of the deacon ministry. The Bible teaches that there are two offices in the church. The first is the office of pastor, or sometimes in the Bible it's called elder or overseer. When you ever see pastor, elder, or overseer, all three terms refer to the same office. And so a church is to have a pastor and pastors. Our staff is a group of pastors, and and we've been called by God to shepherd the flock of God, to oversee the flock of God, to lead the flock of God. That's one New Testament office, the office of pastor. The second New Testament office is the office of deacon. And it started here in Acts 6, and it's formalized over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul shares the qualifications at the beginning of that chapter for a pastor, and then he shares the qualifications for a deacon. So those two offices are highlighted as the two offices a church is to have. Pastor and deacon. Deacon and pastor. Those are the New Testament church offices we see in God's Word. And so a new church office was established to deal with the issue. To be an extension of pastoral care from the apostles to deal with the issues they did not have the time to get to that would distract them from their main calling. Here's the second thing. Men were chosen for this role. They said, let's start this new office. And then people were actually chosen for this office. Look what it says in verse 3. Brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. And then look what it says down in 
verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they, the congregation, chose Stephen, man full of faith, Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So the congregation chose these men to serve in this new role, this new office of deacon. There are several things I want you to see about choosing men for the office of deacon, and it comes right, right from the text. First of all, men, deacons should be men of good reputation. Look what it says in verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Good reputation. In other words, there should be an integrity, a reputation of godliness in a deacon's life if they are to be selected to that role. That's why Paul gives us the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. They should have a good reputation in terms of their family life, in terms of how people who are not in the faith, not in the church, see them and, 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 and how they respect them. And they should have a good reputation in terms of their integrity and their character. Men who are chosen for the role of deacon should be men of good reputation. Also, deacons should be spirit-filled. Did you notice what Peter says here? Peter says... Or the apostles say, Choose from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit. They should be Spirit-filled. Why should a deacon be Spirit-filled? Because a deacon cannot fulfill their God-called role in their own strength. And by the way, that's also true of you. Did you know you can't do what God's called you to do in your own strength? Do you know that? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we got to have help. To obey God. we got to have help to serve God. That's why it's so important that deacons be men who seek the, the continual filling of the Holy Spirit to empower them and guide them in their service. Next, deacons should be men of godly wisdom. Verse 3, it says, Choose from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom. Wisdom comes from knowing the, the Word of God and taking the truth of God's Word and applying it to the daily decisions that face us in our lives. It's, it's, it's sanctified, Bible-driven common sense is what's being said here. It's making good decisions, righteous decisions, godly decisions, because you build your life upon the truth. And men should be, uh, deacons should be men of godly wisdom. Also, deacons should be chosen by the church. There in verse 3, the apostles say, Pick out from among you. They're talking to the congregation. You pick out from among you the men you want to serve as deacon. And then in verse 5 it says, What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they, the congregation, they chose. And it gives us the list of men chosen for that role. And so deacons should be chosen by the church. They, are, they come from the congregation to serve the congregation, to represent the congregation. They should be chosen by the congregation. That's the biblical principle here. That's why... When we uh, get to the point in our, our calendar when we need to uh, find new deacons, to raise up new deacons, we pass out forms, and you pray, and you read the qualifications, and you write down men you think would be uh, good candidates for the office of deacon. You make that decision. They, they're surfaced from our congregation. That's just following the biblical pattern. And then deacons should be evangelistic. They should be evangelistic. They should have the heart to share the gospel. Look what it says in verse 8. Stephen, one of the men mentioned in verse 5, is described in verse 8 as being full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And we're going to see 
that as the, the, the end of this chapter unfolds, we'll say this in the coming months, and then in chapter 7 that Stephen preaches a powerful message about Jesus. As a matter of fact, they stone him for preaching it. Spoiler alert. He dies for preaching the message he's going to preach in Acts chapter 7. But it's a powerful, spirit-filled presentation of Jesus Christ. Another man that's mentioned in that list in verse 5 uh, is a man named Philip. And Philip is described over in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I want to show you this very quickly. We'll study this more in depth in coming days. But look what it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, a deacon, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So he's preaching Jesus Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then later on in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see that, that Philip is taken and set down in the middle of a desert and God uses him to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch who is saved. And so Philip and Stephen characterize deacons that are concerned not with just serving in the life of the church, but also sharing the good news with outsiders. Deacons should be evangelistic. And so what's the solution? A new church office is formed, the office of deacon, and then men are selected by the church to to serve that role. But here's the third thing. Roles were defined and established. Roles were defined and established. Look look what it says back in Acts 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. In other words, they will take care of this issue with the Hellenist and Jewish or Hebrew-speaking widows. They're going to deal with this and, and make sure everyone's getting the care that they need. So they're going to take care of this. But verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Roles were defined and established. So you had apostles, you had deacons, and they all knew their role and all did their role. Now, I believe this idea of prayer and the ministry of the Word applies to the office of pastor. Let me tell you why I believe that. You say, well, these are apostles talking here. Well, we don't have apostles anymore. We don't have them. Apostles were chosen, uh, or an apostle was chosen in, in Acts chapter 1. And do you remember the requirements to be an apostle? You had to be with Jesus from the baptism of John onward, and you had to have seen Jesus alive from the dead, bodily upon this earth. And guess what? No one in this room meets those qualifications. So there are no apostles anymore. Apostles were an office in the New Testament church that were given as a catalyst to lead the church in its infant years, to establish the truth of the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to lead the people uh, in their faith. But we don't have apostles anymore. So who has the primary role of teaching and preaching the Word of God? Well, it tells us in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God gave the church apostles, who are no longer around, and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, teachers. Now that they're no longer apostles, now pastors, teachers are the office that fulfills the role of the ministry of the Word. We know this because Timothy was an elder, a pastor in the church in Ephesus. And Paul told Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. That's your role. 
So a pastor teacher is to fulfill the ministry of the word in a local congregation. So this idea of prayer in the ministry of the word applies to the pastorate, to elders, pastoral staff. If you look there in your notes, a pastor's primary focus should be the ministry of the word. Not their only focus, but their primary focus, the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is the calling to study God's word for the purpose of equipping the church with the truth. This includes preaching, teaching, evangelism, mentoring, discipleship, counseling, worship. It involves all of those ideas. And did you notice the link there? Prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, prayer and the ministry of the word are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. They they go together. Why is it so important for a pastor as he ministers the word to pray to? Well, first of all, as a pastor studying the Bible to present it to others, the pastor needs understanding, right? So a pastor's praying. Your pastor's praying. Holy Spirit, open my eyes that I can understand this text and rightly divide the word of truth. I want to get this passage right. And, 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 and Lord, as I study this passage all week long, would you apply it first to my own heart? Let me deal with this first before I present it to the congregation. Lord, change me through this text. And that involves prayer to have that kind of ongoing conversation with God in the study. But also, pastors, biblical pastors, want to see their congregation's lives changed. And guess what? No pastor can change someone's heart. Do you know that? Who changes the heart? God changes the heart. So we're studying, and we're getting ready to present and teach the Word of God, and we're praying, God, would you change hearts? God, would you use this to transform lives? I can't change our Only you can change their heart, God. And so there's this, this, this link between prayer and and the ministry of the Word. And prayer and the ministry of the Word should be a pastor's primary focus. Now listen to me. You should expect that of your pastor. You have every right to expect that your pastor's primary focus will be prayer and the ministry of the Word. doesn't mean that pastors and staffs, they don't do other things too, but it does mean the primary focus is prayer and the ministry of the Word. And if other things are taking away from prayer and the ministry of the Word, something needs to change. Because you are being shorted on the ministry of the Word. And you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't cut back on the Word. Amen? And so you have every right to expect that prayer and the ministry of the Word is the primary role of your pastor. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your pastor, even though I am your pastor, but, but I won't always be your pastor. Eventually someone else will be the pastor of Longview Point. And when you have a new pastor, you have every right to expect that their primary focus will be prayer and the ministry of the Word. And if prayer and the ministry of the Word is not their primary focus, something's got to change. Right? That's what the Bible says. And so, prayer and the ministry of the Word should be the primary focus of of a pastor. What about deacons, Wade? What are deacons supposed to do? Well, deacons serve in order to allow the ministers of the Word to pray, prepare, and proclaim. They serve so they can free up ministers of the Word 
to pray, prepare, and proclaim. They say there in verse 3, We'll appoint these men you pick to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, what they said, please the whole gathering. And we don't hear any more about this, so the assumption is it worked. It worked. I'm going to show you how it worked in just a moment. But these deacons took care of the issue. And by the way, the issue with the widows was a legitimate issue. It needed to be dealt with. And the deacons would take the, the lead in dealing with this issue so the apostles could preach the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it how that works? So they clearly defined roles, and they all defined their role. And hey, let me just say this. You may not be a pastor. You may not be a deacon. But you've got a role in the body of Christ. Right? Okay, three of you believe you have a role in the body of Christ. Let, let, come in close. You have a role in the body of Christ. The Bible says you've been given a spiritual gift. And you have a role, a a, a part to play in our church. So, I do my role. Deacons do their role. Staff does their role. But you are also called to do your role. And if everyone in the power of the Holy Spirit of God is doing their part, you will have a mighty instrument in the hands of God that can absolutely change the world. I love this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He writes, Waiting on tables would have left the apostles little time for anything or anyone else. The apostles would have dried up spiritually under the pressure of serving meals, plus all the counseling and preaching with little time for preparation and prayer. Furthermore, if the apostles had agreed to personally run the food program, others might have hesitated to perform the slightest ministry without apostolic direction. And that would have fostered the over-dependence we sometimes see today on leaders. And then he writes, Delegation is at the heart of developing followers. And so not only were the apostles freed up to do what they're called to do, they were able, listen, to get others involved in ministry. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I don't think it's any accident that this morning in my quiet time, I read Exodus chapter 18. And in Exodus chapter 18, Moses, leading the people of Israel, who had been delivered out of Egyptian bondage and slavery, is visited by his father-in-law named Jethro. And Jethro shows up to spend some time with Moses and his family, and he begins just to observe how things are going. And the Bible says that Moses spent all day, every day, dealing with conflicts and issues that came up between the people. We know that there are probably around 2 million Hebrews at this time. Can you imagine all the conflict that would arise from 2 million people? And so Moses has been in every day personally dealing with every issue that arises. And Jethro basically says, Moses, you can't keep that up. This is going to kill you. So so Moses, here's what I suggest, that you select men and organize them to to carry some of this load so it's not as heavy on you. So what does he do? Moses chooses leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they deal with the conflict that comes up among those different groups. And if something couldn't be solved, there would be an appeals process, and it would eventually come to Moses, and Moses would deal with it. But this lightened his load. It lightened his burden. Other people were involved. They were organized. They were organized. And I believe that's the Old Testament equivalent of Acts chapter 6. They were organized for impact. 
So we've seen the struggle, we've seen the solution, but what happened next? Well, let's look at the success, and we'll be through. Let's look at the success. Look in verse 7. And they organized apostles, prayer ministers of the word, deacons taking care of this issue with the widows, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow, it worked! Instead of distraction and getting off task and off mission, we see them with a laser-like focus on God's calling. And God uses them in a mighty way. So what are the results? First of all, the Word of God increased. It says there in verse 7, the Word of God continued to increase. As the apostles did their thing, prayer, ministry of the Word, the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Gospel went forth, and more and more people were exposed to the truth. It's a beautiful thing. But secondly, the number of disciples multiplied. It says there, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Notice that adverb put in there. Multiplied greatly. Explosive growth here. As more and more people are saved, born again, as we heard the choir sing earlier, and following Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. As they are organized for impact, more and more people get saved. But the third thing is really cool. The hard to reach were being saved. Look what it says there in verse 7. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. These were the Jewish religious leaders who were led by men who were against the preaching of Christ. And yet we see priests coming to faith and following Jesus, believing that He was the Messiah sent from God. The hard to reach are getting gloriously saved. God is using this church. David Peterson writes, The satisfactory resolution of the conflict in the Jerusalem church made it possible for this ministry of the gospel to flourish and for church growth to take place even more rapidly. Church growth continued because the word of God had free course among the believers. Listen, and outsiders were able to witness its practical effect in a loving, united community. As well as here's challenge from the lips of the apostles. In other words, people heard the word of God and saw a beautiful unity in the church, and it was compelling. Listen, not only were they hearing the truth of God's word, not only were they hearing the gospel, the people in Jerusalem saw the church taking care of their widows, making sure that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were taken care of just like the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows. They saw people selling their possessions So they could have resources to help others that had needs. And I believe they saw the love in the church and the love that they saw was compelling. And didn't Jesus tell us how how it works? That the world will see our unity, they'll see our love for one another and be moved by it. And so they heard the word of God, they saw the love and compassion, and they were compelled. And the church grew quickly. The, the, the disciples multiplied quickly and greatly. We see the success. And so, here's the point of it all. Let me give you just a one-sentence summary of what we looked at here. The Bible gives clear direction 
as to how a church should organize its spiritual leadership in order to impact the world with the gospel. That's what it's all about. Organizing the church so everyone knows their role and fulfills their role so that the church can have maximum impact spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ across the street and around the world. You might be here this morning and say, wait, I've never heard a church, uh, sermon on church organization before. Why are you preaching on this? Because it's so vital. I can just imagine those cadets practicing, marching, getting ready to go to the parade grounds. Can you imagine all of the practicing, the hours they had to put into marching and precision and turning and staying uh, lined up straight? Can you imagine all that went in? I bet there were times when it felt very mundane, very unexciting, but they were learning how to be organized, to be a unit that was on the same page that could fulfill a mission together. And if we will follow the New Testament teachings, follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we can be an organized body of believers where everybody knows their role so we can make maximum impact in this world with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen to me, church organization is a huge deal, really important. And Acts 6 bears that out.